Do me a favor, track down a Bible if you can. We've got Bibles down in baskets by your feet, and if you would, get with me to Luke chapter 18. And the Bibles we have here, those blue Bibles that you would find in the basket, you would find that section of the Scripture on page 851, 851. Um, Like I mentioned at the very beginning of our service, we are doing a series right now called Who's Your One?, And what we're doing then is we are thinking through specific individuals that we are praying for and looking for opportunities to share the message, the life-giving message of the gospel. Um, So again, we've got a few different resources, but you could pick these up on your way out today. Um, You could begin thinking about and praying about specific people. And that's our goal. We want to be very, very practical, and our hope is that all of us in here who consider this our church home that we would buy into this vision, that we would be marching out of here with the, with the names of people on our minds, and uh, we would be praying for them and looking for opportunities to share. So here's how it's working in my household right now. Every night I've got two small kids, so we'll, we'll be putting them to bed and we'll say, hey, who do you guys want to pray for today? And Harrison will pray for my sister-in-law who's leading in worship, and he'll say, I want to pray for Ellie and her baby. And so we'll pray for Ellie and her baby, but uh, we'll say, okay, is there anyone else? And, and, um, and then we'll talk to Reese and we'll say, hey, Reese, who do you want to pray for today? And she'll say, I want to pray for Kinley. Now, Kinley's our neighbor across the street, and, uh, and um, you know, she came with the camp and they're, they're friends, and we've just gotten to know this, uh, these neighbors really well. We've spent, we spent a lot of time with them now. We, we did Dairy House this week. We got some ice cream together. Yesterday, we were hanging out together. But every night, Reese will say, let's pray for Kinley. And let's pray that Kinley uh, comes to know Jesus like we know Jesus. And so we're hanging out yesterday, and we prayed for her last night. But yesterday, while we were hanging out, Kinley was like, can I go to church with you guys in the morning? And we're like, yes, absolutely. So we get it approved by mom and dad. We, and and uh, She's actually here today. She's out in KidsWorks with Reese. They're hanging out. Yeah, it's really neat that um, my daughter is, she loves her Lord and she wants to share that with her friends and, and uh, it's just really cool. And so our hope is that this would be very, very practical, that you would have specific people that you're praying for and looking for opportunities to share the life-giving message of the gospel. So then what we do is we come together for church and while we're doing church together, we're thinking along these terms. Is there anything that we could learn from the life and ministry of Jesus that would help us to be more faithful in this task? Um, and, and what we've done then is we've identified a handful of different instances where he does a one-on-one conversation with somebody, and he's sharing with that person the message of salvation. And so we looked at, I wanted to give kind of a broad picture of the different kinds of people. We looked at a religious leader in Nicodemus. We looked at an unlikely woman, a Samaritan woman by the well. And this morning we're looking at um, this rich man. And then next week we're going to look at this kind of sketchy dude named Zacchaeus. And we're just pay- paying attention to, okay, how did Jesus do this? And he doesn't have a specific type of person, and he doesn't have a cookie-cutter approach, but each person he comes into contact with, he appropriately shares the gospel message with that person. And so we're trying to learn from him and see if there are things that we could try to replicate as we share that faith with others. So let's go ahead and read the text, and then we'll pray and we'll get to work. This is Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18. It reads like this. A certain ruler asked him, Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we've left all. We've left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. Let's pray. Lord, we, we want to hear your voice right now. We pray that you would anoint this time in our service so that this would be more than just a little talk, but we would actually, by your spirit, through your word, encounter the risen and reigning Jesus Christ. And I pray for anyone in here who has not surrendered to him, who has not trusted in him for salvation, that you would give them an opportunity this morning, a, a personalized invitation to take that step of faith and surrender their lives to you. God, for those of us that are believers, that are looking for opportunities to share this message with others, would you help us today to think through how we could do this more effectively? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's look at three different things that we find here in this story. We're going to look at the nature of salvation, what that really means to be saved. We're going to look at the demands of discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus, and then we're going to think about the task of evangelism, which is sharing that message of Jesus with others. So let's get to work. Number one, the nature of salvation. The nature of salvation. What does it mean to be saved? Why is it that they say, who then can be saved? Who can be saved? Who, in salvation is this rich word, but it's talking about how God rescues us, that he gives us the hope of eternal life, that he grants us forgiveness. And this story, the, the story really is, and the teaching of Jesus is painting a picture of the nature of salvation. And so we need to figure out how does it work? How do you experience it? Now, the, the rich man comes to Jesus and right away, we, we begin to notice that the conversation, Jesus is going to steer it toward his intended destination. So let's look at it, verses 18 and 19. A certain ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. So right away, we just have this category of goodness that's put out in front of us. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to dismantle that. This rich ruler comes to Jesus and he says, what do I need to do? Tell me the different things that I could do so that I might inherit eternal life. 
And, and so the question is a great question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, this is kind of something that all of us need to struggle with. We need to wrestle with. How could we inherit eternal life? And all of us kind of have this sense that there's more to life than these years that we will spend on earth. God, we're, we're told in his word that he's written eternity on our hearts. So if you stop and you reflect on what will happen when I die, that's this question. And you, you should begin to think through, how could I inherit eternal life? How could God, how could I experience life everlasting together with God? And the category of goodness is put forward, and I, I think Jesus kind of sniffs this guy out, and he goes, this guy thinks that he could earn his way into heaven, that he could be a good enough person to get into heaven. So one of the things that I've noticed is if you ask the average person, how do you get into heaven? What, is it, do you have any way of knowing whether or not you could be in heaven? And if you did kind of the man on the street, and you had a microphone, and you just went to a normal person, and you said, how, how do you get into heaven? And you put it in their face. Here's what most people I think would say. I think I just need to be a good person. And I know I'm not perfect. I mean, nobody is perfect, but I, I need to be a good enough person that my good outweighs my bad. And then when I would get to the gate of heaven, I'd have this evidence that I'm a good person. And that should probably commend me to be able to enter into the, into the gates of heaven. And I think that's how most people think about eternal life. They think, okay, I just need to be a good person. I need to be better than most, and hopefully I'll be received gladly. And, and the truth is, that idea never fully goes away, which is why we find this religious individual who still is talking in this way that reveals he thinks he can still contribute something to eternal life. He's looking for something that he can do. So Christians, you know, people who've been around church for a long, long time, we keep drifting back into this way of thinking where we go, really what matters is that I have a large account of goodness, that I'm doing enough stuff that, that God will look at this and go, yeah, man, you are a stud in the kingdom. Come on in. And all of us kind of fall back into that way of thinking that we can perform and be good enough. But Jesus here is He's going to dismantle that. He's going to show us that doesn't work. That's why right out of the gate, he's saying, why do you call me good? You, you need to understand that goodness is something that you can't actually perform, that you can't actually get good enough. The only one who's good is God alone. And he's helping us then to understand the nature of salvation. We are not going to be saved because of our goodness. And that's why the conversation moves in this direction. He begins to highlight the Ten Commandments, and he now points him to the Bible, and he says, how are you doing with this stuff? How are you doing with following what God wants from you? So look with me at verses 20 and 21. He says, you know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And the guy responds by saying, all these I've kept since I was a boy. So he looks at the Ten Commandments and he goes, what do you think about these? And the guy says, I'm doing that. I've never killed anyone. I've never taken anyone's wife. I've never done it. I've honored my parents. I'm doing a pretty good job at managing the expectations that are placed on me. So that must mean that I'm good enough, right? 
I'm doing a pretty good job of being a good person. I'm devoting my life to that. I'm asking spiritual questions. I'm trying to do what God wants me to do. I'm doing that in, an, in a decent way. I'm keeping these ever since I was a little boy. And here's what Jesus is doing. He is beginning to show him that though he is attempting to be a good human being, he is still falling short of the goodness of God. And he starts in that category of the law where it's talking about relationships with other people. And he's going to move him to this final commandment that he's not keeping. And I think he's doing that because he's trying to help him see, though you are trying to keep these 10 commandments, you are failing to do it with the perfection that God demands. Um, He could have started with the first one, love God, love God with all your heart, worship and serve God alone. And, And the guy would have said, I do that. I love God. I'm a fan of God. I'm trying to keep that commandment. But he's, he's moving him to this 10th commandment, and, and that's where there's a sticking point. So let's, let's look at it. But um, verse 22, when Jesus heard this, when he heard that the man considered himself to be keeping these commandments even since childhood, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven then come follow me. The 10th commandment is the one that says, your heart needs changing. You shall not covet. You shouldn't desire anything more than you desire God. And so, yes, we can do a pretty good job of not killing people and not stealing other people's wives and honoring our parents, and we can do a decent job with that. But when, when the commandment says, oh yeah, and your heart needs to appropriately align with God, and you need to desire God more than anything else, and you shouldn't want anything that doesn't rightly belong to you, all of a sudden, all of us have to say, we can't do that. We fail to do that. We don't live up to the standard that God has placed in his word that would would define us as being good. We can't do it just like this man can't. He is pointing to this treasure principle that we need to cherish and love God more than anything else, that we need to worship and serve God more than anything else, that our commitments to our stuff and our possessions and our relationships actually need to pale in comparison to our love for God alone. And this man is unable to fulfill that commandment. He's being called to be generous with his resources, to sell what he has, to give that away to other people, and it's a sticking point for him. Though Jesus says, you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me, he has a hard time with this one like many of us do. Verse 22, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. He's saying, look, this is a sticking point for all those who are rich. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, why, why does he say that? What, what is the point here? Because all of us in here would be defined as rich uh, in comparison to the rest of the world. So we need to figure this thing out. What is it about richness that, that is preventative of us entering into the kingdom of God? Here's what I think it is. Self-sufficiency. If you're rich, you have what you need. And you, go, you cruise through life and, and you think, I'm okay, I don't have a lot of needs, I don't, I, I'm, I'm producing for myself, I've got these resources. You're never really thinking through, I'm a very needy person. 
because you're self-sufficient. And Jesus here is trying to point out the fact that the way of salvation is when you recognize you come to him empty-handed. That you come to him without all these things that you've done or resources that you have, but you come to him and you acknowledge, I need more than what I can produce. I need your help. I need your salvation. I can't produce a righteousness on my own that is good enough to permit me into the kingdom of God. So being rich actually is a problem because it makes us feel self-sufficient. That's why in the previous section, there are little children that are being brought to Jesus and he says, this is, he, he points to this and he says, this is the way of the kingdom. You have to receive the kingdom like a child. What does a child have? A ton of needs. A child comes empty-handed. Now the, the rich, we come with all of our gear and we go, yeah, I don't really need a lot of help. And I'm actually doing a pretty good job of being a good person. I'm, I'm following God's expectations for good people. But what do we actually need? We need to come before him empty-handed. Jesus here is commending this thing called poverty of spirit. He wants us to recognize our need. In another place in the Bible, he talks about the blessed people are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. We need to be people who are poor in spirit, who say, salvation is not me producing something. It's not me being good. It's what God has done for me in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So Dwight Moody, D.L. Moody, he put it like this, God sends no one away empty-handed except those who are full of themselves. When, when people come to God, what, what do they need to come? What posture do they need to have? Empty-handed, saying, God, I need help. I need, I need you to do something. I can't be good enough to earn my way into heaven. That is the way of salvation. That's why it's described here as an impossibility. It is when we surrender and we say, I can't do that. God has to do that for me. Look with me at verses 26 and 27. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So what is the nature of salvation? It is when we come before God and we say, the only shot that I have of eternal life is you doing something for me. I come empty-handed, I come needy, I come broken, I come with expectation that you're going to give to me what I can't produce on my own. And I'm also saying that everything that I try to do is going to be pretty wonky. It's not going to be good enough. It's not going to be, it's not going to be perfect enough for God to say, yeah, that, that is amazing. That is your ticket. I'm going to punch your ticket and you can come in. So the way of salvation is surrender. And when, I, this, is, this, is a, this is something we all need to wrestle with. Have we ever surrendered to God like that? Have we ever acknowledged our need like that? Because a lot of churchgoers are people who are like this rich ruler who are pointing to their obedience, saying, I'm a good person. I'm saved. I'm a good person. And Jesus is dismantling that for us this morning. All right, the second thing we see here is the demand of discipleship. When you look at this story, it's very radical because Jesus is saying to follow him is to align your life to him so much so that everything that came before him looks different, right? Relationships look different. Commitments look different. All of a sudden, when you surrender to Jesus and you say, I'm going to follow you, it changes the way that you handle your resources and your relationships and your entire life. Because what you're saying is, if I'm following you, that means you get to call the shots. 
So I'm going to listen to you and, and how you're leading me into my workplace and how you're leading me in relationships. But all of that, all of that is open to discussion because I'm following you. So you tell me what this needs to look like and feel like. And that's what we find in this story. Jesus is calling this man to surrender his resources and gain a treasure in heaven and then follow him. It's a demanding call. And, and he's not willing, as we find out in the story. He's not willing to part ways with his stuff at this moment. But that's what Jesus is after. He is after people who are entirely committed to him. Not people who merely go to church or merely try to be good people. He is looking for people who, is, who will surrender their lives and align them to the priorities of Jesus Christ. So that's what the disciples point to. Peter, hearing this, says, we, we, I'm good. We've done this. Look at verse 28. Peter said to him, We've left all that we had to follow you. And that's true. He left his fishing business. He left relationships. He left a lot behind to begin marching out and following Jesus Christ. And Jesus then reminds him and us that to do that is a good deal. That to surrender your life to him and to follow him is actually a good deal. Look with me at verses 29 and following. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who's left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. To follow Jesus is not a downgrade. And a lot of us will, will nervously think to ourselves, can I really trust him like that? Can I really give this thing up? Because I really like this thing. I like this relationship. I don't want that to change. I like my stuff. I don't really want to be open-handed with my gear. I, I want to keep it to myself. I want to know that it's mine. I earn this. I, I should be able to manage it however I want. Is this really a good deal? And Jesus is saying, look, when you come open-handed, trusting me that I can manage your life, he's saying you will receive many blessings both in this age and in the age to come eternal life. It is not a downgrade to, to offer your life entirely to Jesus. This call to discipleship, though it is demanding, it is also incredibly rewarding. You are gaining the treasure. You are gaining the gift giver. You are gaining the one who makes everything better. That's why the missionary Jim Elliott, who gave his life in service to the kingdom, who died down in Ecuador as he was trying to reach unreached people, he put it like this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It is not a bad deal. To, to offer your life to Jesus and trust him with it. It is an improvement. And, and again, Jesus is calling us to this radical way of life. We want Christians who not only come to church, but their entire lives are shaped according to the king himself. There is a reward for that. That's what Jesus is saying. And it's going to be hard. The sacrifices that we make, I'm, I'm not trying to say it's easy peasy. I'm not saying, you know, these decisions that we make are lighthearted. When we say, my relationships can change, my geography can change, my household can change, Jesus, whatever you want to do, I'm on board because I'm following you. I'm not saying it's going to be super easy. We shouldn't even expect it to be. Because look at what the king does. If we're following this king, what does he say he has coming? If you look at the end that we, that we read, verses 31 to 33, he's telling the disciples, here's where I'm going. Here's where we're headed right now. We're headed to Jerusalem. And according to the scriptures, I'm going to be handed over 
and I'm going to be tortured, I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be spit upon, I'm going to be flogged, I'm going to be killed, but I will rise from the dead. If we're following a king like that who is going to a cross, should we expect it to be really easy? I don't think so. We should actually assume that being a disciple of his would actually mean marching into some very hostile situations, some very challenging situations, and and expecting that it will be hard, that it will be sacrificial, just like he was willing to lay down his life for the sake of others. So the demand of discipleship, it is costly, but it is also very, very rewarding. Here's the third thing we're going to look at together, and, and it is the task of sharing this message, the task of evangelism, sharing the good news of what Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection. We want to be people. One of my ambitions for this campus is that we would be a place where certainly on on Sunday mornings, the gospel is being proclaimed, that people could come in here and hear in a clear and compelling way what Jesus has done for them. But what's even more exciting to me is, what if we left here each week and we went and we told other people that message? So it wasn't stuck in the auditorium on Sunday morning for an hour, but it actually becomes this ordinary conversation that we're having with people, that we are carriers of the good news, and we go around publishing that good news. We're telling people, here's what God has done. Here's how you know that God loves you because he sent his son to die in your place. And we tell people this news. So I want to spend just a few minutes looking at this task of evangelism and seeing if we can learn a few things from the Lord himself. Here here are four things, and then we'll wrap it up. Number one, I hope that we would be known as people who can accurately explain the ways of God. Isn't it interesting that this guy comes to Jesus and asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Here's, here's Here's what I'm pointing to. This individual knows that Jesus is somebody who he can gain answers from. He's a religious expert. And it must feel safe to go to him because he's willing to approach him and say, hey, good teacher, what do I need to do? I hope that all of us in here would be known as people who are followers of God. And if somebody, a family member or a coworker, wants to know more about God, the first person that would come to mind would be you. That you would be known to be a, a person connected with God with some idea of what that God is like and what that God would want for them. And I hope that you would, you would feel that, that other people would feel that from you, that they would feel that you're safe, that you know some things about God and that they can ask you questions and you're not going to embarrass them and you're going to listen to them and you're going you're to offer sensible suggestions of what God is like. My hope is that we would become people whose character is magnetic, that people are coming to us not because we're obnoxious Christians who are on Facebook just telling everyone, hey, I'm, I'm following Jesus. I know you don't want to hear it, but I'm just telling you, and I'm telling everyone, and no, nobody wants to hear it. But we would be magnetic people that, that coworkers and friends are just drawn to. They just want to spend some time with you, and they, they want to ask you questions because they see your life is different. I hope that we could be more like Jesus in this way. Secondly, I think we can learn um, from Jesus that it's a good idea to ask good questions and then to look for opportunities to speak into the heart. What does he do here? The guy says, hey, what do I need to do? And Jesus responds with a question because he wants this guy, he's inviting this person into that that spiritual experience of discovery, right? Too often what we do, Christians, 
If somebody's interested in God, we preach at them. We, you know, if, they're, if they come into our house and they're sitting at our table and they've got any questions about God, what do we do? We're like, awesome, here we go. And we just give them a little sermon. And we talk and we talk and we talk, and they never get to have a word edgewise just tucked into that conversation. And, and we may have been very persuasive, and we may have given them a ton of information, but, but a lot of it could have just went right over their heads. But when we ask good questions, we're inviting them into that process. Well, what do you think? What do you think God is like? And we can then help them to discover the truth about God. I think questions are a great strategy for sharing our faith. Randy Newman, he actually wrote a book called Questioning Evangelism, and the whole book is about asking good questions to help people come to faith in Jesus Christ. I think that's a great strategy. We find it here with Jesus. And then what does he do? After asking questions, he's pointing to the heart. We want people to be radically changed from the inside out. And so as we're talking to people, we should be thinking and praying and asking God to help us discern what is really going on with this person's heart, with the the state of their soul, so that when we share the, the gospel with them, it's very appropriate, it's very clear, it's very relevant for them because we've identified what's really happening in the heart. So for this guy, though he was trying to obey the commandments, Jesus helped them to see your heart isn't fully aligned to the things of God. You think you're a good person, but you value your stuff more than you value God. You don't just have possessions, you're possessed by your stuff. You are owned by your stuff. And he's pointing to the heart and he's helping them to see that. We need to grow in our ability to do that. Here's the third thing we can learn from Jesus here about sharing the faith, and it's this reality that we shouldn't try to lower the expectations. We shouldn't lower the call to surrender, and we shouldn't lower the bar on the demands of discipleship. I think that has gotten us in a lot of trouble. Jesus here is saying, you have to surrender. Your goodness isn't good enough, and discipleship looks like this, sacrifice and change. He, he lays it out there, and it's a very high and demanding call. And I think we do ourselves, we're not doing anyone any favors when we try to make it way too easy and say, hey, you can follow Jesus. Your life doesn't have to change at all. You don't have to do anything different. You shouldn't even reconsider your life. You can have him and all of his blessings and, and expect for nothing to change about your life. What do, we, what do we have then? I think what we have in American Christianity is a lot of people who call themselves Christians who aren't saved. Because we have not made it clear that Jesus is saying, you have to surrender, you have to die to yourself, you have to trust in his righteousness, and you have to surrender to his demands for discipleship. So let's not reduce the call to surrender or the demand of discipleship. Fourth and finally, we need to proclaim the gospel. And here's what I mean. We're not just sharing ideas. We're not just telling people about God in general or about church going or anything like that. We are talking about a person, Jesus, and we are talking about what he did at the cross, at Calvary, in Jerusalem. That's why at the very end of the section, in verses 31 to 33, we we hear him describing this gospel event that he is going to lay down his life, literally lay down his life on a cross, getting nailed there and dying in the place of undeserving sinners. So when we're sharing with people, We're trying to get there. We're trying to point people to our Savior who loves us and expressed his love at Calvary. We want to share the gospel message. Jesus Christ rejected, crucified, and risen. 
for us, for our salvation. And I think if we'll do that, I think we will, we will help people to know this beautiful and saving God. Um, so I'm going to pray right now, and, and I'm actually going to ask that you would stand, because I want to pray over us as we think through what this message could mean for our own hearts and for those who we're going to share with. So would you stand and bow with me, please, if you're able. Lord, if there are people in here who are still looking at their goodness as their hope of glory, would you help them to recognize, even right now, that's not going to cut it? And would you help us instead to surrender to the perfect work of Jesus Christ? For anyone who's not yet a Christian, I'm asking God that you would take this moment to offer a very personal invitation to them that they would surrender today and commit their lives to trusting in your finished work on the cross and that they would surrender their lives to whatever it is you want them to do. Lord, all of us in here that are believers, we would love it if we got better and better at sharing this awesome message of salvation. Help us, God, because we, we're scared and we feel inadequate and we feel like maybe people are going to do just like this guy and just walk away. And would you help us to trust, God, that as you call us to do this, you will give us what we need by your Spirit, that you will give us words and opportunities. And would you help us then, God, to just be bold and to share this message and, and to watch as people surrender to you. Lord, what an awesome reality that you can use feeble people like us as instruments of your grace. Lord, help us to be a church community where that's just happening left and right every week. Lord, we want that so badly. Help us, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.